Come see the new quiz show, Go Fact Yourself, with special guests Andy Richter and Fresh Air's Tanya Mosley. It's March 23rd at the Crawford. Get your tickets at las.com slash events. From the Moon Broadcast Center at KPCC, this is The Frame. I'm John Horn. On today's show, a New York jury has convicted Harvey Weinstein on rape and sexual assault charges. Does that decision reflect a sea change in Hollywood? And will it lead to more women coming forward to report abuse? Then documentary filmmaker Lauren Greenfield follows the remarkable return to prominence of the former first lady of the Philippines. Imelda Marcos was back in the Philippines as a congresswoman, which I was kind of amazed at. It was almost as though if we could imagine Nixon coming back and running for office. That's coming up on The Frame. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Harvey Weinstein was convicted today in a New York City courtroom on two of the five rape and sexual assault charges he was facing. He was immediately taken into custody until he is sentenced on March 11th. Weinstein's attorney said the conviction would be appealed. The Oscar-winning producer still has to face trial here in Los Angeles, where he faces up to 28 years behind bars if convicted for a variety of sexual assault charges. That trial date has not been set. To talk about today's conviction, we called up Deborah Katz. She's a Washington-based attorney who has worked on many sexual harassment cases. She was in the courtroom today, and I asked her for her reaction to the Weinstein conviction. My reaction was one of tremendous relief. It was very emotional to um, come, come to this moment where a jury, in no uncertain terms, uh, convicted Harvey Weinstein of rape. He is now a convicted rapist. And the jury rejected some of the most antiquated uh, arguments that are made to blame victim, to blame women for their victimization. And the jury just rejected that. It was a really important watershed moment in court today. I'm going to get to the defense strategy in a moment, but I'm curious what your take was of the fact that Harvey Weinstein was not found guilty of predatory sexual assault. You know, the jury instructions were confusing. I sat in court when Annabella Shiora testified, and it was extremely powerful testimony. There was, I think, no one in the courtroom who had any question that, other than that she was an extremely credible, powerful witness. So we don't know why the jury did what it did. Sometimes there's horse trading in the jury room, but I am not someone who subscribes to the view that this means they didn't believe Annabella. I think Annabella testimony was credible and was a very powerful uh, statement. So we don't yet know why the jury did this, but sometimes jurors horse trade and they agree to convict on less um, less um, momentous charges and convict on some of the others. And we don't know what happens here exactly. You represented Christine Blasey Ford in the Senate hearings of Brett Kavanaugh, and she faced similar attacks that some of the witnesses did in the Harvey Weinstein trial to her memory and her credibility. 
Was there anything different in the Harvey Weinstein trial than the Senate hearings for Brett Kavanaugh? Because clearly they came to a different conclusion. But in terms of how the women were treated by the defense in the Harvey Weinstein case. You know, it's interesting. In the um, Christine Blasey Ford hearing, I think it is clear that members of the Senate uh, Judiciary Committee, even those who voted against her, knew that she was absolutely credible. But ultimately, they made a political calculation that they were not going to oppose President Trump's nominee, and they uh, allowed him to be elevated to the court. And I don't think it's because they disbelieved Christine. In this case, the jury, in the strongest possible terms, um, rejected the arguments made by Donna Rotuno that poor Harvey Weinstein was the victim of these these wily women who wanted to use him to advance in their careers. And a jury saw through that, and in this instance, they said that Harvey Weinstein was going to be held accountable. And it was a very, very significant moment repudiating uh, the kind of arguments that pre-Me Too movement may have had greater power and greater hold. We're talking with lawyer Deborah Katz about the conviction of Harvey Weinstein today. I want to play a uh, cut from a phone conference call that was done today by a number of women who claim they have been sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. The speaker is a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein named Rowena Chu. I was thinking this morning as I read the news of the story breaking, um, what an amazingly different position I'm in today from October 2017 when I was locked in a bathroom with my six-month-old and I was crying because reporters had been turning up on my doorstep and reporters had been Facebooking me and tweeting me and emailing me and turning up at my workplace and I felt barraged and unable to speak and locked in this position of terror because of the NDA that Harvey had forced Zelda Perkins and I to sign in 98. That double violation, not just of the original assault in a hotel room, but also the subsequent NDA that we signed. So Rowena Chu is a member of what is collectively known as the Silence Breakers. That was audio from a conference call earlier today. NDA stands for Non-Disclosure Agreement. Talk about why they're important and why they might need to be changed. Well, there's two types of NDAs. One is as a condition of employment that you show up for work and you sign an agreement that you can be penalized hundreds of thousands of dollars if you speak negatively about your employer. And we now see uh, Mike Bloomberg campaign tied up in that, that he has campaign workers tied up with NDAs. And I think that they are never acceptable. And the only purpose that they have is to muzzle uh, employees and protect secrets in the workplace. That is not a good that is not a good thing. Their second type of NDA happens when individuals enter into settlement agreements and they agree to keep the terms and conditions of the settlement and essentially what happens to them completely confidential. Now if those kind of agreements are negotiated at arm's length, meaning that's what the victim, usually a woman, wants as well, and many, many of my clients do, there's not a problem with such an agreement. Most of my clients do not want to be known in perpetuity in connection with the single most traumatic event in their lives. They don't want to have their name Googled and see it appear next to the harasser. And in fact, that could affect their future employment because many HR offices actually uh, screen for that. But NDAs that have been negotiated, I would say, before the Me Too movement that could have been very coercive and one-sided in nature, like what happened in the Weinstein case, like what happened with Fox, with Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. There needs to be a path to let women out of those kind of 
agreements. And Rowena is a very powerful speaker to how coercive those types of agreements can be and how much it hurts victims of harassment. Coming up on The Frame, more of our conversation with Deborah Katz about the conviction of Harvey Weinstein. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back now to my conversation with Deborah Katz about today's conviction of Harvey Weinstein. But let's first hear from several women who participated in a conference call this morning. They all have alleged sexual abuse by Harvey Weinstein, and they are collectively known as the Silence Breakers. So I just want to say that this is the day that truth has won. This is a momentous day. And this is the day that hiding behind vicious, petty transactional defense was slaughtered. It's really nice to see that money and power doesn't make you completely untouchable. When Roman Polanski got a standing ovation at the Venice Film Festival last year, I just anticipated that Harvey Weinstein was going to get off today. But that's not going to happen because now Harvey Weinstein is a convicted rapist. Harvey Weinstein has haunted many of our lives, even our nightmares, long after he initially did what he did to each one of us. We have finally taken that power back. It's like the sky is blue again, and I just want to thank all of the women who spoke out against this man who seemed impervious to the law for so many years. I think you and I can agree that Harvey Weinstein was, not that long ago, one of the most powerful people, not just in Hollywood, but in corporate America. And the way that he wielded that power was immense, and it was, in many ways, terrible. The fact that, as we speak right now, he is behind bars in a jail cell, that means something symbolic. And it's hard for me to put it into words, but how would you put it into words? I was just on a call with dozens of survivors of sexual assault by Harvey Weinstein, and to the person, they talked about this being immensely freeing and empowering to see Harvey Weinstein held accountable. So not just for them, but for anybody who's been subjected to sexual assault and abuse, to see Harvey Weinstein, the most powerful person in Hollywood, uh, toppled in this way and to be behind bars should give everybody courage to come forward. And Harvey Weinstein is is where he should be today and tonight behind bars. I want to ask you a couple things about changes going forward. You have represented a former Weinstein company executive, Erwin Ryder, who said he reported Weinstein's behavior to company executives. And Harvey Weinstein allegedly told Erwin Ryder he was called, don't call me the sex police. How do we start changing corporate culture so that if you have a a whistleblower like Orwin Ryder, that he is listened to and that his information is acted upon? You make the cost of to have harbored or enabled sexual harassers to be very high. Companies that do that deserve to be called out for it and to be held accountable for it. And that's the only way that things change. In this Me Too era, many companies did not want to be the next poster child for uh, keeping someone in their midst who was deemed to be too 
crucial to get rid of, even though they were harassing other people. And I do believe that there has been a sea change in corporate America on these issues. But clearly, Harvey Weinstein had all the power in his company, and he had people around him who enabled the abuse. And when women came forward, they paid them a small amount of money and silenced them. And that era, I think, is, is over. We've seen many powerful people fall from Les Moonves to Matt Lauer, who I think before the Me Too movement, we would have considered to be too powerful to ever be removed from their positions. And that's obviously not the case. We're talking with lawyer Deborah Katz about the conviction of Harvey Weinstein today. There's another way in which that women have been silenced, and that is by statute of limitations. And half a dozen women testified in Harvey Weinstein's trial, but there are scores of women who have said that they were sexually assaulted or raped by Harvey Weinstein. So is it time to think about the statute of limitations in terms of sexual assault and rape and how they might be changed and what the process would be like to change those laws? Very important point. Yes, legislatures need to revise their laws to allow longer periods of time for individuals to come forward who have been sexually assaulted, both as a matter of civil law and criminal law. So people who rape individuals cannot get a pass because too much time has gone by. And it is very important to give victims a longer period of time to come forward. People have to come to terms with what happened, come to terms with trauma, and be in a strong enough place to come forward. And what we know with victims of sexual assaults who are uh, who know the person who perpetrated it, there are hosts of complicated reasons that individuals take more time to come forward. So yes, the statute of limitations has to change. And one other very important policy prescription is we've got to get rid of mandatory arbitration agreements to keep 68 million workers from being able to go to court, including women who have been sexually assaulted and harassed in the workplace. Harvey Weinstein faces a future criminal case in Los Angeles and also some civil litigation. How might the verdict today affect either of those? I think the verdict today should give confidence to the prosecution that juries are able to sort through evidence that at times can be uh, complicated, where victims of harassment and sexual assault don't necessarily behave in the way that uh, you might expect. Sometimes they stay in in touch with the uh, harasser, assaulter, as as happens, as was the case with Harvey Weinstein. And it should give the prosecution some confidence that juries are not going to blame victims who get themselves caught in this web of predatory relationships, which is what Harvey was so masterful at doing. The evidence presented by the victims of Harvey Weinstein was not physical evidence. It was their memories. It was their recollections. It was their testimony about what happened to them. Is that important as well, that it was their word, not medical records, that ended up convicting Harvey Weinstein? Yes, it's powerful that women testified and they were believed. And Donna Rotuno, Harvey's lawyer, I think incorrectly assumed that she can impugn the motives of these women and someone on the jury would bite and he would be acquitted. And the jury worked very hard to sift through uh, the evidence, and he was convicted on two very serious charges. He is a convicted rapist. Deborah Katz is a lawyer in New York who represents victims of sexual assault. She also has been attending the Harvey Weinstein trial. Deborah, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me. Coming up on The Frame, filmmaker Lauren Greenfield and the documentary she made about Imelda Marcos called The Kingmaker. I hate the world today. 
Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. Its politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And its food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about LA. Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Amelda Marcos is a natural subject for a documentary by Lauren Greenfield. The photographer and filmmaker has spent her career examining wealth and extreme materialism. But in The Kingmaker, Greenfield goes beyond Marcos's famous shoe collection and the billions of dollars that she and her late husband allegedly looted from the Philippines. As the wife of Ferdinand Marcos, Amelda was First Lady of the Philippines from 1965 to 1986. At that point, he was ousted and they fled to Hawaii. Ferdinand Marcos died in 1989, and Amelda was allowed to return to the Philippines two years later. When I met Lauren Greenfield at the Telluride Film Festival, she began with one extravagance that first got her interested in telling this story. The Marcoses depopulated a small island in the South China Sea in 1976 to make room for 104 animals, African animals, which they brought over on a ship from Africa, uh, a kind of Noah's Ark, and they've been there ever since. We were on safari in Kenya, and Amelda was fascinated with the wild animals. I got so envious that we didn't have those. So she ordered them. You know, like you buy a dress in Paris, you bring an animal from Africa. Then I said, I will complete paradise for the Philippines because we will also have the animals from Africa here. But they also, as you say, depopulated the island. They kicked the people who had been living on this island off to make way for this vanity project. And I think it's easy to say that in a way epitomizes what the Marcoses did and how they saw their country and their money. And that was really my kind of access point into the story and into why I wanted to do this film is there was something about the animal island that was this expression of extravagance. You know, people know about the shoes, but this was a extravagance that involved living things and had implications for people and animals that went generations. It was an island that was not inhabited by a group of people or they did not have uh, um, communities there, except a few that I could uh, tell them what to do. Then your film kind of moves from the island onto the mainland, and the idea of what these animals represent becomes part of the story, but not the story. So how does that transition happen? Because as part of that transition, you also start spending time with Imelda Marcos. Imelda Marcos was back in the Philippines as a congresswoman, which I was kind of amazed at. It was almost as though if we could imagine Nixon coming back and running for office. Um, She had left accused of stealing five to $10 billion, left in shame. The United States had a court case against them. People threw them out of the palace, ransacked the palace. And um, the idea that, I mean, people say in the film, the Filipinos are very forgiving people, so they allowed them to kind of come back to their homeland when she was older and, and Ferdinand Marcos had passed away. But I think nobody realized that they could kind of 
use the money that hadn't been repatriated to come back to power. And so that's what I started covering. And one of the ways Amelda was kind of getting back into power was through the candidacy of her son Bong Bong for high office. He was running for vice president. One of the things I thought when I began is that for Bong Bong and Amelda, who are in politics again, I thought they might separate themselves from Ferdinand Marcos and from martial law to kind of find their own success. And I was really surprised when I went to Bong Bong's office for the first time, and all over the wall were plaques of his parents and photographs of the parents, and that they really idealized that time. And that story is what they've also sold to the, a lot of the Filipino people. What was your pitch to Imelda? How did you get her on camera? She is not telling her story as a way to get to power. I think she really believes it. I think she feels like she wants to be the mother of the Philippines and use this kind of, in a way, there's a philanthropic and kind of moral purpose to even her extravagance. She says extravagance is mothering. I was always criticized for being excessive, but that is mothering. That is the spirit of mothering. You cannot quantify love. So extravagance is not vanity for her. It's something that she gives to the Filipino people. We're talking with Lauren Greenfield about her new documentary, The Kingmaker. You have made some movies and shot a lot of photographs that are about aspirational wealth and displays of wealth and about what people get from having material possessions and the kinds of things that they're attracted to and how that validates them as a person. This seems to be a different part of that idea where wealth is used toward political ends to accomplish political goals, to suppress dissent. Were you conscious of the fact that in the making of this film that you were staying true to the things you visited in the past, but it was a different chapter in that story. Yeah, I feel like I always start stories out of interest of things that have come before, but really with an open mind to what I see and learn. And I think I was attracted to Imelda because of the shoes, because of the animal island. But the story I found, which was much more compelling, was really money as a means to power. And the corruption piece is very important in the Philippines because there's a direct connection between money and elections. There you see Amelda giving out money. It's a place where people pay for votes. Um, you have people who are hungry, fully participating in a democratic process. But as Aquino said, you can't really engage in democracy when you're thinking about your next meal. And so it's a place ripe for corruption. And People who are, um, in a way, almost like royalty, like Amelda, are looked up to both because of the money they give and what they represent, but also because of the glamour and beauty and almost feeling of royalty that they have and the kind of cult of personality that people then look up to. I think irony is too polite a word, but the incredible poverty that a lot of people in the Philippines live in is in part a consequence of all of the money that was stolen by the Marcoses. Even though she was acquitted in U.S. courts, I think we can agree that they looted the country. And yet those same people now have this aspirational adoration 
of the wealth that Imelda Marcos possesses, even though it was money that was stolen from them. And that's what, in a way, keeps her in power and popular. I mean, one of the things that I was looking at was the kind of fake news and manipulation of information and how that also affects elections. So the money has another um, kind of avenue, which is influencing social media and um, kind of spreading the Marcos narrative about history. And that's been very effective with an uneducated population and also because even in the education system, martial law hasn't really been taught in the history books. Or it's been taught as a good thing, not as, you know, a dictatorship where dissent was punished and dissenters were killed. Exactly. And so that had a lot of resonance for me in terms of thinking about how information was manipulated in our elections and kind of seeing it in a very clear way there. The situation in the Philippines is obscured by rigid news censorship imposed when President Marcos put the country under martial law last Friday. 14 of Manila's 15 newspapers have been closed. Marcos has said he is trying to save his country from communism. There's a lot of archival footage in your documentary. There's a lot of interviews. And there are also moments that are really revealing. I want to talk about two. One is Imelda Marcos is asking one of her assistants like how her belly looks, how she looks on camera. And there's another where she is showing off her picture collection with a lot of world leaders, including people like Gaddafi that she idolizes. And a couple of them fall on the ground and there's some shattered glass and somebody comes in to sweep those up. And you preserve both those moments. Why are those moments important to the film? Well... The moment where she's giving me a tour of, um, in her garden, she set up photographs of her with all the world leaders. She was on the world stage in a time when women were not. She was very proud of the fact that she went all over the world, almost like a diplomat. Her husband kind of sent her there. And many of the people that she talks about fondly are dictators who were her friends. She says people thought these people were monsters, but they were so kind and generous, like Gaddafi, like Saddam Hussein, like Chairman Mao. And it, it, it was in a, a way a window into Imelda's character too, because she's really nice and generous and charismatic when you get to know her. It's kind of like, you know, anybody's nice when you get to know them in a way. And yet there are these terrible consequences. And I think with the with what happens is she's showing me the pictures and some of the frames start falling and breaks and shatters. And she doesn't miss a beat. She just keeps on going with the tour. And one of the servants starts picking it up. And, you know, she is indomitable. She is unstoppable. She says, bad things have happened to me. I don't let it affect me. She just carries on. And I think that's what's so, maybe why she's been underestimated. And somebody else will clean up her mess. Exactly, and that's the story of the Animal Island. Lauren Greenfield's new documentary is called The Kingmaker. Lauren, great to see you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Kingmaker debuts on Showtime on February 28th. And that'll do it for today. I'm John Horn. Thanks for listening. We're back here tomorrow at the Moan Broadcast Center. Hey. It's Brian, the host of the How to Relate podcast. How about we go to the movies? Join us for a 10-part series, Revival House, and discover the magic of L.A.'s indie theaters. Who knows? You might meet someone. I know it sounds antithetical because you're just sitting passively, but in fact, you're connecting with everyone else around you. 
Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.